This is the Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm Amit Ghosh, a general internist at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. The topic of today's discussion is antibody response to vaccines. We are joined by Dr. Elitsa Thiel, who is Professor of Lab Medicine and Pathology at Mayo Clinic, Rochester. And she's also Director of the Infectious Disease Serology in the Division of Clinical Microbiology at the Department of Lab Medicine and Pathology. Dr. Thiel is amazing in the fact that uh, she has done tremendous work during this last year with our pandemic and has been honored by several large institutions having received the Heroes of the Pandemic Honorary and also the 30 Under 40s Award by the Business Insider. The latter is an important uh, award and the recipients usually under 40 years old and only 30 of them are selected from all over the country. And these recipients have been found to be shaping the future of healthcare. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Thiel. Thank you, Dr. Gosh. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here. Dr. Thiel, sometimes the most simple things becomes the most confusing and most difficult. And I'm sorry that I had to pick on you to talk on this topic because nobody in the Mayo Clinic is at the cutting edge and at the forefront as you are. And we have all learned from all your expertise and all the knowledge which has percolated. So I would like to set the stage by asking you about the antibody testing and what we know about the different kinds of antibody testing or maybe the history of antibody testing in um, the COVID-19 pandemic situation. For a while there, it was kind of a wild, wild west situation with antibody tests. At one point, I'd say in the height of the pandemic, there were over 200 COVID antibody tests out there on the market. And part of the reason was that there was no regulation from the FDA on what antibody test companies could produce, unlike what we saw with molecular testing when they were very strict and rigid. So it was, it was kind of chaotic in the beginning. Things have been reeled back in. The FDA re- started requiring that manufacturers submit their performance characteristics to the FDA for review before the test could be put on the commercial market. So right now we have about 85-ish tests, serologic tests for COVID um, that can be used, but they are so different. They differ in the antibody type that's detected, whether it's IgG or whether it's total antibodies. They differ in the SARS-CoV-2 antigen that they're based on, whether it's the spike protein or certain regions of the spike protein, or whether it's the nucleocapsid protein that we're detecting antibodies against. They differ in the results and how they're reported, whether it's a qualitative POSNEG or um, whether they also include some sort of quantitative value. The methods differ, whether they're high throughput or a quick lateral flow assay. And so as you can imagine, there's really not a lot of standardization or harmonization between the assays. And all of that does lead to some variability in the performance characteristics of those tests. So it's been really important for laboratories that are offering antibody testing to really understand how well their tests perform and in what patient populations they perform well or or not well. So here at Mayo, we currently offer two antibody tests for COVID. Both are total antibody tests. One is looking for antibodies against the nucleocapsid and the other is looking for antibodies against the spike protein. 
we went through a lot of iterations of what tests we were offering until we got to the two that were most comfortable and are most accurate in our hands. So if you have to have the cliff note version of antibody testing, when would you order for a nucleocapsid antibody testing? And when would you order for a spike protein antibody testing? It depends. When talking about natural infection, it, when you're naturally infected with COVID, you will produce antibodies to all sorts of different components of the virus, nucleocapsid and spike in this case. So if you want to know if you were naturally infected, um, you would order a nucleocapsid antibody test. Antibodies to the spike protein will also develop after natural infection, but those will also develop after vaccination. So for anti-spike proteins, we cannot differentiate between natural infection versus vaccination. So Cliff Notes version, if you want to know if you were previously naturally infected, you would test with an anti-nucleocapsid-based assay. We've had so many different versions about should we test antibody, which vaccine produces more antibodies. So as I understand, whichever vaccine you get, all you would get is a spike protein antibody. Mm -hmm. Is there any preference from our labs as to of the usual three vaccines that we have, does one vaccine produce more antibody response than the other? It's a it's an interesting question, right? So all of the vaccines are designed to induce antibodies to the spike protein. And because there's no harmonization between the different assays that are used by the vaccine manufacturers to look at antibody levels, we can't directly compare antibody levels from Moderna versus Pfizer versus Johnson and Johnson. So I guess I don't have an answer to your question specifically, but what I can say is that from all of the vaccine trials, we it's very apparent that they are all very immunogenic and they all stimulate a very strong antibody response to the spike protein at least, you know, two weeks after in infection. So although we can't say which necessarily develops a stronger antibody response. We know that they develop a very elevated antibody response that is clearly protective. Just going back to the antibody production, do we really care about testing for IgM antibodies or IgA antibodies? Because what we are really talking now is the IgG antibodies. And the other thing which I've read about the natural infection is that the IgM and the IgG antibodies are developing almost at the same time, unlike what we traditionally read that you go to have IgM, it starts going down, and then yep. the IgG comes up. Yeah. So do we even care about the other two immunoglobulins, IgM and IgG, or is it just to be left to the researchers? Right. Personally, my opinion is there's no role for IgM testing for COVID because IgM, we typically consider that a marker of acute infection. If you think you have acute COVID, you're going to get a molecular test, right? We don't need to be waiting for IgM to develop because in some patients, we can detect it early on if, during the first week, but for the vast majority, it still takes at least seven days to detect that IgM. And by then we have IgG as well. In my opinion, it doesn't really add much to the clinical picture to test for IgM. On the flip side, um, IgM antibodies start to taper off after about two to three months of infection, you'll see IgM fall. 
but IgG will remain elevated. So again, what is the role of an IgM assay, I think is, is minimal, which is why we've focused all of our assays um, that we've ever offered were either IgG only or total antibody detection of the total antibody response. What we are talking about is a general response. And I've had calls coming on from UK and others that, you know, I had the infection and within a couple of months, the antibody went away. I checked again and I don't have antibody. So I don't know whether it was the early stage of the antibody testing and how accurate those tests were because we have much better testing right now. Mm-hmm. But from your testing process and your experience, how do human beings present? I mean, is there a, I, we know the subset of patients who are immunosuppressed, they may not produce that level of antibody, but I've heard if you have mild infection or moderate infection, the antibody response may not be that robust and it could last a shorter period of time as opposed to somebody who's in a hospital or in an ICU where they can have a much more robust antibody. So there's a whole myriad of uh, clinical situation. So what would your advice be to a person who says, I've had the infection and now I don't have the antibody? Yeah. So there are so many variables that go into why that may or may not happen. Like you said, from earlier studies, we know that people with mild or even asymptomatic infection, they start out by producing just a lower level of antibodies. And we know, you know, natural infection antibodies wane over time. And so they can zero revert to negative more quickly than somebody that had more severe disease and developed a much stronger antibody response. So that is this natural immune process. The other variable is also, like you mentioned, accuracy and sensitivity of the tests that we had last year versus what we have now. And there's some data coming out that anti-nucleocapsid antibodies, depending on which assay you used, seem to decline faster versus anti-spike antibodies. So there's a lot of reasons that you might see reversion in an individual that had previous confirmed COVID-19. And that's really why I think there still is this push for everybody to get vaccinated, even if you had COVID in the past because your immune system may have just naturally waned and we can't rely on it to be as robust um, now as it was last year. So we do see a lot of patients who are absolutely certain that they said, well, last January, I'm sure I had it. They didn't even have the PCR testing then and they're all coming with fatigue and they want to be diagnosed as a post-COVID long hauler syndrome. And we really can't label them because we are not able to detect the antibody. I would kind of look at your lab in future to come up with if there's some kind of a tracer kind of system to say that these guys have had some infection, which at this present moment, we don't have it. That makes it confusing sometimes to the patients. But then coming to the vaccine, how's the antibody response? Or do we even care if somebody's got the vaccine to even check the antibody level? Great question. So I would split it kind of into basic buckets. Um, For otherwise healthy individuals, we know from the clinical trials that pretty much everybody seroconverted to positive. So what is the value of checking an antibody level in an otherwise healthy individual? Yes, it's nice to know, but nothing's going to change. The other reason I caution against checking antibody levels after vaccination is because we can tell you, yes, you're positive, 
you know, there's semi-quantitative assays out there now, so we can tell you you have this level of antibodies. But the big question right now is what does that number mean? What does that level mean? I can tell you that the higher the number, probably better, but I don't know how high enough is good enough. So one of the gaps right now with COVID is we still don't have a correlate of protection that's been identified. So we don't know what level of antibodies is correlated with long-term protective immunity, which we have for other vaccine preventable diseases like measles and hepatitis and rubella. You know, we know that if you're above 1.0 international units per mil, you have long-term protective immunity. Still don't know that for COVID. There's a lot of research going on to identify a correlate of protection that's challenging to identify, and it can differ based on what clinical outcome we're looking for. So the correlate for protective immunity against severe disease or, or death may be different than the correlate of immunity against infection, for example. So those studies are ongoing to really help us determine, A, are neutralizing antibodies a good correlate of protection? Are they a good marker of protection? And B, if they are, what level is significant or sufficient? That's an interesting point. So the question which has come up is how long does the antibody last, uh, the effects of the antibody last after a vaccine? And I've heard different, different numbers. Um, I've heard six months uh, as a good number, which the CDC is also putting, but they said to be absolutely sure. I mean, it's three months. So that number keeps fluctuating and already there is vaccine hesitancy and you have people being convinced that you need to have another booster vaccine, which I believe is going to happen sooner or later. We're already giving it for immunocompromised uh, patients. From the lab standpoint, are you seeing any waning of antibody level after the vaccine? As we said, we don't even care about the levels. What are we seeing from your end? Yep. So we haven't published any of this, but just looking through our results. So our anti-spike antibody test is a semi-quantitative um, test. The upper reportable range is 250 units per ml. And just looking at those that we know have been vaccinated and have been tested for whatever reason after vaccination, and this is testing anywhere from 14 days out to four or five months after infection, the vast majority of them have antibody levels above that 250 units per ml. So it's, again, a very strong response and appears to be a strong response that's somewhat long lasting. We haven't really looked out beyond that five month, six month time, time frame. Again, 250 is, sounds like a lot, but is that high enough for this particular assay? I can't say. I think from what the vaccine clinical trials have shown is that we do see waning antibody levels, decreasing antibody levels, but that doesn't mean that we have necessarily decreased immunity because you're still going to have your memory B cells. You're still going to have your memory T cells, which from research we know are lasting at least eight to nine months. So upon re-exposure or reinfection with COVID, the thought is that those would be quickly stimulated, right, to produce an immune response. I guess I can't speak to whether or not we all need boosters after eight months or whatever the CDC says, but I, I can say that I think it's normal to see decreasing antibody levels, which we see for all many infections, 
but there's still that memory immunity there that should be stimulated upon reinfection or reboosting. Yeah, I think the CDC has just come up with a to revaccinate uh, individuals who are immunocompromised, right. have an organ transplant or uh, something similar. So we haven't had the other part of it, corollary, whether all of us need a vaccine right. down the line. And, and I think that makes sense because we know that a large proportion of our significantly immunosuppressed population is seronegative. So it would make sense to boost as much as possible. And so I think there is definitely data to support that. There's so many variants now. We have the Delta variant. People are always worried whether our vaccine will produce the same amount of antibody and those antibody will be effective against the Delta variant. Now, what happens to the spike protein in any of these variants? A lot of changes can happen in the makeup and other things, small changes, I would say. Mm -hmm. But does the spike protein remain the same so that our antibody against the spike protein will manifest the same robust reaction regardless of the variant? There's a couple of good papers in the New England Journal of Medicine that came out from both Moderna and Pfizer, I believe, where they took sera from vaccinated individuals and in vitro, they looked at neutralizing titers against the different variants, um, alpha, beta, delta. And what they saw very encouragingly was that they're relative to the wild type original Wuhan strain of the virus, neutralizing antibody levels were still elevated against all the variants. So that was good. They did see a decrease in neutralization, most significantly for the beta variant and some for the delta variant, but it was most dramatic, I'd say, for, for beta. So I think we can say that the vaccines are still highly effective against all of the variants, even though in vitro we are seeing, you know, some lower level neutralization titers against some of, some of the variants. And so again, I think that just speaks to the importance of vaccinating individuals, not only to protect the individual patient themselves, but also to minimize the risk of ongoing replication of this virus in the population that would lead to yet new variants with new mutations on top of the mutations that are already leading to some decrease in neutralization. With the amount of travel, even though travel is restricted now, there's always going to be individuals who are going to different places, countries, or high and low prevalence. How is this mathematical modeling done? Like I've heard about the term herd immunity. Mm. Like if you vaccinated X amount of population, is it 50%, 70%? If 70% of us have antibody levels, uh, which are over 250 or so, our chance of being infected is low, which can probably never be zero for a while. Right. Fully understanding that uh, right now for pediatrics, we are not vaccinating. Pfizer, they've come down to 12 years, still parents are worried. And Moderna and Johnson Johnson is over 18 years vaccinated. So the whole population will not be vaccinated. How do we come to this number? So it's that herd immunity threshold. It's, a, it's dependent on a number of factors, one of which is how transmissible the pathogen itself is. 
So in what we've seen for SARS-CoV-2 is that the different variants have different rates of transmissibility or infectivity. So for the original SARS-CoV-2 variant, the study showed that one infected individual can transmit and infect two to three uninfected, unknowing individuals. And so based on that number and some other fancy calculations, the um, minimum herd immunity threshold for that original strain was set to somewhere between 60 and 70 percent. In contrast, with the current Delta variant, we know that one infected individual can infect five to eight other individuals. That has increased the threshold for herd immunity to be at least 80% of the population to have protection in order for there to be protective immunity in the community. So again, it really largely comes down to how transmissible the virus is. And the higher the transmissibility of the virus, the more individuals are going to need to have protective immunity for there to be population level herd immunity. It makes sense. I've had patients coming from Middle East and they are all checking their antibody levels. If they have an infection, they're checking the antibody levels before deciding to get the vaccine or not. And that I understand is not a recommendation, which we call CDC uh, apply. If you have an infection, you wait for 90 days and you get the vaccine. Is that correct? That's right. There's no recommendation right now to test for antibody levels prior to vaccination or prior to even getting a booster for multiple reasons. But for from the lab side, again, it's, you know, we don't know what that positive really means. Is it high enough? Is it positive enough for protective immunity where we can say you're good? You don't need to get further uh, vaccines. Early in the pandemic, there was a lot of talk on neutralizing antibodies and trying to really go after it and finding, oh, you have neutralizing antibodies. So this, you are at a much better state than somebody who's had an infection and the neutralizing antibodies have waned off. Is that correct? Or what is the understanding at the present moment? Should we even check for neutralizing antibodies? Yeah, so neutralizing antibodies are functional component of the antibodies, right? Because they functionally, physically stop the virus from binding to the ACE2 host receptor. So they, they are very important for immunity. The challenge with neutralizing antibodies is testing for them. Typically, you actually in the lab have to grow the virus or a pseudovirus and then, you know, look for whether or not the patient serum can inhibit that virus from growing. It's a very technically challenging assay. It's a safety risk and it's a long, so, you know, it can be a two to, to five day assay. So from the clinical lab side, it's not really a test we want to be running. It is done in research, but not in clinical labs. So one thing we've tried to do is correlate and see whether neutralizing antibody levels correlate to antibody levels that we detect using our high throughput assays. And depending on the test, the correlation to neutralizing antibodies is, you know, can vary. So one thing that we hope to do on the lab site in the future is see if we can identify or use an assay to give you a result that is correlated to the level of neutralizing antibodies you may have. So yes, they're still very important from an immunity perspective, but it's not something that we can routinely and easily test for in the lab. That's, that's correct. The last question I would like to know from you we talked about the spike proteins and the antibody to the spike proteins. 
but the different kinds of spike proteins, S1, S2, and I've heard about the subunits. Is there any role of the subunits, the RAD and others, you can mention about checking for them? Simple question to your answer is, is no. So the, the spike protein of the virus has two subunits, S1 and S2. Within the S1 subunit is the receptor binding domain or the RBD, which is what specifically binds to the ACE2 receptor on the host cell. So a lot of the serologic assays that are available, many of them use just the S1 region in their assays or the receptor binding domain, just that epitope in their assays. For the most part, we've found that accuracy of at least the assays we've looked at, whether it's RBD or S1, is pretty similar. So there's really no clinical need to look for RBD only or S1 only antibodies. Keep it simple. I think that's what you said. But you also kind of differentiated between the nucleocapsid antibody, and I know you have a function now to see if a patient has had a natural infection and we can order straight for a nucleocapsid antibody in that person, or the patient is vaccinated only and has not been, I guess you won't know that if you just order the spike protein, you probably have to order both nucleocapsid and spike, but you're not gonna get any more information by doing that. Right, the so spike you know, protein won't differentiate between natural versus vaccine response. Yep. So I might stick to just to the spike protein and that, that will help. Is there any way of checking T cell immunity Mm. We talked about this B cell, all the thing about T cell, or do we even care about what the T yeah. cell responses are to COVID? Yeah, so antibodies have gotten a lot of the attention, but cellular immunity is really critical for you know getting rid of those virally infected cells. So it is an important component. We don't look for it as frequently now. It's testing for that is a lot more difficult, not to, not impossible, but but more difficult. And right now, there's no assay with FDA emergency use authorization for it. Well, there's there's one assay, but it's a base. It it sequences the T cell receptor um, beta of T cells to see if those T cells have been in contact or seen SARS-CoV-2 antigens in the past. But the, the utility of that test, I think right now is still pretty limited uh, because if you look at the indication, it just says, you know, another method to detect previous infection with SARS-CoV-2. So I think that's definitely an area that's probably going to grow over the next year um, to see if we can more accurately measure the cellular immune response to SARS-CoV-2 and then try and figure out what that means for the patient. Thank you, Dr. Thiel. If anything that we have learned in the COVID era is talk more, ask more, learn about anti antibodies, learn about vaccines, learn about uh, herd immunity and different types of antibodies. This kind of language was not there in medicine even a year and a half ago. We never used to ask this question. So I think you can look forward to all of us asking you many more questions if we have any new variants or any other changes of this virus. And Thank you, Dr. Thiel. We've been talking with Dr. Eltiza Thiel, Professor of Lab Medicine on the antibody response to vaccine. And Dr. Thiel has verified about the robust antibody response to two vaccines or one vaccine, whichever our patients or we. As of now, the antibody response is robust for at least six months. Also, you've simplified a lot of these other things about neutralizing antibody, the subunit of S1, S2, and RBD, 
Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for listening to our Mayo Clinic podcast. Please subscribe, stay healthy, wear your mask, be socially distant, and uh, definitely, definitely, please take the vaccine. And see you back next week.